Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. As you're probably aware, it's a campaign year, and you may encounter some political ads throughout this episode. As a podcaster, my primary revenue source to continue delivering this free content to you comes from advertisers. That said, any ad or campaign in this episode that is not delivered directly from me or using my voice is not a campaign I endorse or support. If you don't want to hear ads, you may skip them or fast forward while listening. You can also get all my content ad-free on Patreon at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Thank you for understanding and allowing me to continue to produce this weekly show for you. To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the quiet wilderness of Dade County on a cold December day in 1988, a disturbing call would change the peaceful town forever. A young, partially dressed female body was found off I-95. The motionless body lay undiscovered for days, presenting a horrific mystery. As investigators dove deeper, the painful truth emerged. No clues, no leads, and no suspects. Did the perpetrator commit the perfect crime? Or can relentless detectives and cutting-edge forensic advancements unmask a killer? This is Forensic Tales, episode number 187, The Rising Fawn Jane Doe Story. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, Your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth, fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales and leave a positive review. Now, let's get to this week's episode. December 16th, 1988, 2 o'clock p.m., the Dade County Sheriff's Department received a disturbing phone call about the discovery of a female body lying near the northbound lane of Interstate Highway I-95 about five miles from the Alabama state line. Two Department of Transportation employees working in that area discovered the body and immediately called the Sheriff's Office. As soon as the call came in, officers from the Dade County Sheriff's Office and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, arrived on the scene. And the first thing they noticed was that the body had been there for at least a couple of days. 
Although it was only a few feet away from the northbound lane of I-95, Dade County was exceptionally rural. In 1988, the county was only 174 square miles. So this meant that there wasn't much traffic on the highway. So it took several days before someone even saw it, just a couple feet away. Once it was discovered that the body had been there for several days, the Dade County officials and the GBI called in the coroner. But before moving her body, they needed to collect as much evidence as possible. Her body was about 25 feet away from the highway in an embankment. She was lying on her left side, and her shirt was pulled up to around her neck. Investigators quickly determined the woman suffered a traumatic death. She had blood coming out of her mouth, there was evidence she had been strangled, and she also had significant blunt force trauma injuries to her head and face. Since her body had been dumped a few days earlier, her body was covered in maggots. She was eventually transported to Hutchison Medical Center, the nearest crime lab facility for an autopsy. But since she had so many injuries and her body had been exposed to the elements and wildlife for days, they couldn't immediately tell what caused her death. Plus, they had no idea who she even was. Her cause of death was eventually ruled as strangulation. Besides blunt force injuries, she had also been sexually assaulted. And from her rape kit, investigators collected a small amount of semen still left on her body, and they hoped it contained DNA. Based on her body's condition, like lividity and rigor mortis, the coroner theorized she was likely killed about three days earlier on December 13th. And after she was murdered, her body was dumped in this rural part of Dade County near the Alabama state line. But there was no way of knowing whether she was killed on the highway or if that's simply where her body was dumped. Now that the authorities had a cause and a manner of death, the next question became, who was this woman? Investigators only knew that she was about 16 to 25 years old. She was around 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighed 125 pounds, and had brown eyes. Her hair was a reddish-brown color and cut to her shoulders. She wore a blue long-sleeve thermal top, a navy blue bra, Calvin Klein blue jeans, and a pair of size 9 black lace-up shoes with no socks. But when the police first arrived on the scene, her blue long-sleeve thermal top had been pulled up to her neck, and noticeably missing at the time of the autopsy was the woman's underwear. She was wearing a white gold ring with a heart on it that was on her pinky finger. She also wore a yellow gold chain around her neck. But that was it. She had no ID or anything identifiable. So without an identification, she became known as Rising Fawn Jane Doe until Dade County officials and the GBI could find out who she was. The nickname Rising Fawn stuck because her body was discovered about a mile north of the Rising Fawn Highway exit in Dade County. Back at the scene, authorities collected a treasure trove of evidence. Since she still had all of her clothes on except for her underwear, there was a good chance her killer left behind valuable forensic evidence either on her body or on her clothes. And when the clothes were examined for evidence, investigators found something. 
First, they had DNA evidence. From Rising Fawn's sexual assault kit, they had what they believed was the killer's DNA extracted from a semen sample. But that's not all they found. They also recovered several strands of dark brown hair from her body and clothing. Since the hair was much darker than the victim's, they knew it had to belong to the suspect. On a few places of her clothes, the police recovered several tan and yellow pieces of fiber. They were fibers consistent with either carpet or upholstery. So this made them wonder if the fibers had either come from the suspect's car or his house. The Dade County Sheriff's Office and the GBI photographed everything at the scene. They took pictures of everything. The body, the embankment around the body, the highway itself, everything was photographed and submitted into evidence. Investigators were also cautious about securing the scene and preserving the evidence. They knew her body had already been exposed to the elements and the wildlife in the area for at least a couple of days, so they didn't want to contaminate the scene any more than it already had been. The exact location where her body was dumped was extremely desolate and rural. This interstate runs north and south between Chattanooga, Tennessee and Birmingham, Alabama. And her body was dumped about five miles north of the Alabama and Georgia state lines on the east side of the northbound lane. The earliest theory was that rising fawn Jane Doe's body was dumped off the side of the highway and rolled down the nearby embankment. Eventually, when she stopped rolling downhill, her body was positioned with her head facing north and her feet facing south. And that's the spot she lay until the two transportation workers found her about three days later. This location suggested two possibilities for investigators. The suspect was familiar with the area. Maybe he lived in Dade County and knew that this was an extremely remote area. Or he drove this part of I-95 often and knew that this would be an ideal place to dump a body. All the forensic evidence collected from the scene and the victim's body was sent to the FBI lab in Washington for testing. The semen sample, the hair, and the carpet fibers were all tested and compared against known DNA profiles in the system. But this type of information was extremely limited back in 1988. Our national DNA database, CODIS, wasn't even established until 10 years later. But there was some type of DNA testing available. That's because the most significant breakthrough in DNA testing during the 1980s was the creation of the restriction fragment length polymorphism technique, or RFLP. This process basically became the first genetic testing using DNA. The RFLP technique uses enzymes to cut the DNA and identify repeated DNA sequences, a technique especially useful in determining relationships between children and parents who share DNA. But this type of DNA testing wasn't very beneficial in criminal investigations. That's because in criminal investigations, cops generally aren't interested in child-parent relationships. Instead, they're more interested in identifying a suspect from a DNA profile. 
So when the FBI received the DNA from the GBI, there wasn't much that they could do. Their resources were extremely minimal. All they could really do with the DNA was, first of all, determine that her killer was a male, which was pretty obvious from the investigation because she had been raped. But they were also able to determine that the dark brown hair also belonged to a male. But again, that was obvious. The hair strands could have belonged to almost anyone with dark brown hair, and that might have been half the people living in the county. So nothing promising came from the FBI's testing in Washington. During the early stages of the investigation, the authorities set up a roadblock along I-95 to try and speak with some of the people who regularly drove the highway. They were looking for any potential witnesses who might have seen something around December 13th, the day that they believed the body was dumped. This tactic got investigators their first major clue in the case. A witness told the police they saw a 1963 or 1964 Chevrolet Nova parked on the side of I-95 about one mile from the Rising Fawn exit on December 13th between 9 and 10 p.m., almost the exact location where the body was discovered. This witness said that they saw a man sitting in the front seat with his headlights on. But when they got closer to the car, the driver quickly turned off his headlights, which they found strange for a couple of reasons. Why would they be parked on the side of the interstate at this time of the night? And why would he turn his headlights off as they got closer? But besides the car's model, the witness couldn't provide much information about what the driver looked like, and they also didn't get a good look at the license plates. All this witness knew for sure was that it was an early model 1960s Chevy Nova and that they were parked near the Rising Fawn exit the same night the police believed the woman's body was dumped. But without an accurate description of what the driver looked like or the license plates, the police were stuck at square one. So all they could do was search for a similar Chevy Nova in the area. While Dade County officials and GBI worked to hunt down her killer, they were also busy trying to identify the young victim. They sent messages via the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, to all surrounding police agencies to see if anyone matching her description was reported missing. But none of the information matched anyone. This really surprised investigators because surely there had to be someone out there looking for her. By all accounts, this woman appeared to be well cared for. Her clothes were neat. She wore nice jewelry. There wasn't any signs that she was any type of transient. So there had to be people out there missing her, looking for her. She had to be someone's daughter or maybe someone's friend. But the missing person databases of 1988 were nothing like they are today. So the search through the National Crime Information Center's missing person databases turned up empty. To generate leads in the case, the GBI partnered with a forensic sketch artist to create an image of the woman's appearance if she were still alive. Based on the autopsy photos, the GBI forensic artist created both clay renderings and sketches of how the woman might have looked. Once they had the images and sketches, 
the GBI circulated the images across the media and surrounding communities. Investigators were extremely hopeful that these new sketches could help someone recognize the victim. But once again, this turned up empty. In another attempt to identify her, the GBI contacted Crime Stoppers in Chattanooga, a nonprofit organization that helps to solve crimes, find missing people, and catch criminals. They were desperate for leads and wanted to see if Crime Stoppers could do anything and get the word out about the case. Anytime Crime Stoppers gets involved in an investigation, it helps spread the word to the public. And in cases involving John or Jane Doe's, the more people that know about the case, the better. It only takes just one single person with vital information to come forward to crack the case wide open. Crime Stoppers reported to the GBI that they were aware of at least 12 unidentified female cases that matched the woman's description. All of the victims had been strangled to death and their bodies had been dumped alongside an interstate. They included cases from Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Texas, and Georgia. Some of the victims even had the same color of reddish-brown hair, exactly like the woman found in Dade County. So any one of these female victims could be their Jane Doe. But after a lengthy investigation into every single one of these cases, none of them was a match. Despite all of their similarities, strangulation, physical features, bodies being dumped alongside the highway, and even the reddish-brown hair, none of them were rising fawn Jane Doe. Even after countless hours of investigation by Dade County officials and the GBI, they were still no closer to identifying her or her killer. So there was nothing left for them to do but to bury her as a Jane Doe. About 30 people from the Dade County community attended her funeral, including some of the investigators. No one could really quite believe that this woman still didn't have an identity. Was she from Alabama or Georgia? Had she been kidnapped somewhere else and then taken to Dade County? Who was responsible for murdering her and dumping her along I-95? There were so many questions and so few answers. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great you don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. 
Seven long years after discovering rising fawn Jane Doe's remains, the authorities finally received a significant tip. In April 1995, Sean Patrick Gobble, known as the Interstate Killer, was arrested in connection with the murders of at least three women along highways in North Carolina and Tennessee. After his arrest, the authorities suspected he might be responsible for even more murders, possibly as many as 10. So Dade County officials and GBI wondered, could their Jane Doe be one of his victims? Almost everything lined up. Rising Fawn was found along the side of a highway, like most of the interstate killer's victims. She was strangled like the other women, and she was around the same age. The circumstantial evidence was also compelling. Sean Gobble worked as a long-distance truck driver, so this meant he might have used Highway I-95 to travel between different states in the area, like Georgia and Alabama. As a long-distance truck driver, he would have known some pretty sneaky places along rural highways to dump a body. Everything seemed to point in the direction of the interstate killer. Shortly after he was arrested, Gobble confessed and pled guilty to the murders of Brenda K. Haggy and Alice Rebecca Haynes in Tennessee. In exchange for his guilty plea, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison. After that plea, he was extradited back to North Carolina, where he pled guilty to a third murder, the murder of 34-year-old Sherry Monser. For that case, he was sentenced to an additional 14 years on top of his two life sentences. Based on these three convictions alone, he won't be eligible for parole until he served at least 103 years of his sentence. After his three convictions, police departments across the country considered the possibility that this man might have committed murders in their states. Anytime they had a case involving a young female found dumped along a highway, they considered him as a possible suspect, and Dade County was no different. The interstate killer was considered in several unsolved murders between 1987 and 1995. Some of them include the murder of Marsha Matthews in 1985, the murder of Shirley Taylor in 1986, the murder of April Barnett in 1986, the murder of Anna Patterson in 1987, the murder of Catherine Hill in 1990, the murder of Cheryl Manson in 1991, the murder of Nona Cobb in 1992, and finally, the murder of Margaret Gons in 1995. Over the years, the police have only been able to officially rule him out of one of these cases, the murder of Nona Cobb in 1992. Through new DNA testing, the authorities have officially cleared him as a suspect in her case, and her real killer was arrested in 2022. But many of the other cases are still considered unsolved, and the exact number of the interstate killer's victims remains unknown. Today, Sean Patrick Gobble is serving his two consecutive life sentences, plus an additional 14 years, at the Northeast Correctional Complex in Tennessee. But despite all the similarities, the Dade County Sheriff's Office and the GBI never found any solid evidence linking him to rising fawn Jane Doe.
Over the next decade, the unknown woman was simply known as Rising Fawn Jane Doe. No one said they thought that she might be their missing loved one. At least, no one came forward to the GBI or the Dade County officials. By the mid-2000s, the sheriff's department and state officials were determined to either identify the victim or her killer. Unfortunately, all the leads had dried up years ago. But in 2005, there was a renewed interest in the investigation. The case was reassigned to new investigators, and maybe a fresh set of eyes could spark new insights from the original evidence. First, the new GBI detectives revisited the DNA evidence collected in 1988. They knew their victim had been sexually assaulted and that semen was collected from her clothes. But did they have enough DNA to generate a complete profile? The evidence was resubmitted to the FBI's crime lab. Although it was tested in 1988, shortly after it was collected, there had been some pretty incredible advancements in DNA testing. So in 2005, the FBI generated a full DNA profile from the sample. Once they had the DNA profile, they submitted it to CODIS, our national DNA database, yet another advancement since 1988. The DNA profile was compared to every existing profile in the CODIS system. Every single DNA record in CODIS was scrutinized in the search for a match. And during that time, everyone was on pins and needles waiting for the results. This pivotal moment marked the closest that they had ever come to discovering the killer's identity. But when the results came back from the FBI, they were a massive letdown. No one matched. In 2005, the GBI also entered the victim's DNA into CODIS. But similar to the DNA of her attacker, no matches were found either. Now, this news didn't really come as too much as a surprise for investigators. No real reason existed for her DNA to be in the system. CODIS wasn't created until years after she was murdered. So the chances of her DNA being in the database were pretty much slim to none. But still, by then, they were willing to do anything and everything it took to get a lead. Following 2005, the investigation into the case grew stale, and the newly assigned GBI detectives were later reassigned to other unsolved cases. For the next 10 years, there was no progress in the case, leaving it dormant. It wasn't until 2015, a whole decade later, the case was reopened. By this point, the identities of both Rising Fawn and her attacker were a mystery for nearly 30 years. In 2015, a fresh set of GBI detectives had an idea. Instead of only relying on DNA evidence, they had a different forensic artist create a clay rendering of how the woman might have looked. They did this years ago, shortly after the murder, but they wanted a different forensic artist to create an updated image to see if anyone might still recognize her all these years later. They also created an age-progressed image to show how she might look today. 
The age progression and the clay rendering were circulated throughout Georgia and the neighboring states. Although it was impossible to say how she would exactly look almost 30 years later, they hoped that this new image might spark some information. But like the first image from 1988, the new image failed. No one recognized her. Between 2015 and 2021, a handful of detectives from the GBI worked the case. If a tip came in, they investigated it and moved on to finding the next tip. But this wasn't the state's only unsolved and unidentified missing person case. Since 1988, hundreds of more cases came into the GBI. The sheer number of cold cases forced the detectives off the Rising Fawns case. But despite the growing list of cases coming in, they never forgot about this particular case. They never stopped searching for answers. By 2021, the GBI turned to forensic genetic genealogy to generate new leads. Like many police departments across the country, law enforcement agencies turned to genetic genealogy to try and solve their cold cases. Using both advanced DNA testing and traditional genealogical research, genetic genealogy is a powerful tool that can help solve cold cases and identify John and Jane Doe's. It works by taking unknown DNA and uploading it to various DNA databases. Not only are investigators looking for an exact match in one of these databases, but they're also searching for familial matches or family members related to the person they're searching for. Genetic genealogy has been incredibly useful to many law enforcement agencies after it was announced that this same technology helped to catch Joseph James D'Angelo, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer, in 2018. In that particular case, the police had the suspect's DNA for years. They had collected it from several crime scenes. But traditional DNA testing wasn't good enough to identify him. So finally, they turned to genetic genealogy to figure out who he was. Since then, law enforcement officials have used it almost every single day to solve old cold cases and to help identify unknown people. In 2021, the GBI exhumed rising fawn Jane Doe's body and submitted her skeletal remains to Othram, a private lab in Texas specializing in forensic genetic genealogy. Once the remains were sent to Othram in Texas and they secured the financial funding to perform the testing, it was game on. Scientists at Othram performed its signature forensic-grade genome sequencing on the skeletal remains. According to their website, forensic-grade genome sequencing allows scientists to build a genealogical profile of a person using the smallest or most degraded samples of DNA. This type of advanced DNA testing can reveal insights that traditional DNA testing can't. Using this technology, Othram extracted a DNA sample from the remains and uploaded the DNA profile across various databases. Immediately, they identified several relatives to her, a huge first step. 
once they had a list of relatives, they built family trees using these family members. They found grandparents, cousins, second and third cousins, a lot of people related to Rising Fawn. But to narrow their search to their Jane Doe, they needed to identify her closest of close relatives. And after months of putting together family trees, they found her. After three long decades, Rising Fawn Jane Doe's true identity was finally revealed using genetic genealogy. Stacy Lynn Chahorsky. In 1988, Stacy was 19 years old. At the time of her murder, she was reportedly hitchhiking alone across the country, making her way to Norton Shores, Michigan. But she never made it to her final destination. Stacy's family last heard from her in September 1988. She had called her parents and told them that she was on her way back home. She said she was in North Carolina, but planned to head toward Flint, Michigan, then eventually home to her parents' house. Stacy's parents said that their daughter had always been a free spirit. If she wanted to do something, she did it. If she wanted to go somewhere, she went. No questions asked. So when she was out hitchhiking her way across the country at 19 years old, her parents didn't think too much about it. And even if they did, they couldn't stop her. Stacy was just too much of a free spirit. She was young, and she wanted to enjoy life on her own terms. And sadly, someone took that all away from her. Stacy's parents reported her missing in January 1989 to the Norton Shores Police Department in Michigan. She was reported missing because she was supposed to be home weeks earlier. When her mom realized something was wrong, she immediately called her local police department and reported her daughter missing. But Stacy wasn't missing in Michigan or Norton Shores, where the missing person report was filed. So the local police didn't have any jurisdiction over the case. Unfortunately, all the police in Michigan did was enter Stacy's information into the law enforcement information system. But after that, there wasn't much effort to find her. And since Stacy's mom knew her daughter was hitchhiking, theoretically, she could be anywhere. No one had any idea where to even start looking for Stacy. Identifying Stacy was simply the first step. Yes, it was a huge step forward in a three decades old cold case, but it was only a start. The GBI, FBI, Othram, and the Dade County Sheriff's Office still need to solve one more critical piece identifying Stacy's killer. As soon as Othram identified Stacy through genetic genealogy, the GBI in Dade County wondered if the same technology could be used to identify her killer. So they had the DNA profile that was generated from the semen sample also sent to Othram in Texas to be tested. Once they received the DNA profile, Othram performed the same forensic-grade genome sequencing they did to identify Stacy. After the testing was done, the FBI and GBI investigators began interviewing potential relatives of the suspect and started collecting DNA swabs from them. Once they got the swabs, 
they were compared against the unknown suspect. This process was repeated over and over again until June 2022, when they got what they had been desperately searching for for years. They got a match. Othram identified their target. After the FBI found out they had their suspect, they sent the DNA profile back to Othram so that they could perform what is called a confirmation DNA test. And according to this test, the unknown DNA found in Stacy's rape kit belonged to one man, Henry Frederick Wise. In 1988, Henry Wise worked as a truck driver who regularly drove through I-95, the same interstate where Stacy's body was dumped. He often traveled that route for Western Carolina Trucking Company, driving through Chattanooga to Birmingham to Nashville. So he would have been very familiar with this remote stretch of the interstate. He knew that it was the perfect spot to dump a body. Somehow, Henry Wise was able to avoid capture for years. And he may have even believed that he was going to get away with the perfect murder. Now, some might call it karma, while others might call it something else. But in 1999, 10 years after he assaulted and murdered Stacy, Henry Wise was burned to death and killed in a car accident at Myrtle Beach Speedway in South Carolina. At the time, he was working as a stunt driver and was killed during a stunt. He was 44 years old. Henry Wise was no stranger to law enforcement. His significant criminal history spanned across several states, including Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. Some of his crimes included theft, assault, and obstruction of a police officer. But because his felony arrests happened before mandatory DNA submittals for felonies, his DNA was never on file. Even after committing several serious crimes, he was never required to submit his DNA. That's why the GBI and Dade County weren't able to locate him in connection to Stacy's murder. At the time of the murder, Henry Wise was 34 years old, and his victim, Stacy, was just 19. He worked as a cross-country truck driver, and she was just a young girl hitchhiking across the country. Although we may never fully understand the motive for why Henry Wise did what he did to someone as young and innocent as Stacy, here's a possible theory. Henry Wise frequently drove his truck along I-95. He often took loads in his truck from Chattanooga to Birmingham to Nashville. Sometime while driving, he saw 19-year-old Stacy standing on the side of the road with her thumb out looking for a ride. Maybe Henry pulled his truck over and asked where she was headed, and then he offered her a ride. As soon as Stacy stepped into the truck, evil happened. He sexually assaulted her and then strangled her to death. Once he was through with her, he dumped her body along the side of the road off I-95 interstate. He knew this was a remote part of Dade County 
and the chances of anyone seeing him were slim to none. He also knew that it would take law enforcement days to find her body. He was right. It did take investigators over three days to find her. Henry was convinced he found the perfect location to dispose of a body and never get caught. But he was wrong. It may have taken law enforcement over three decades to find him, but through forensic genetic genealogy, they did. Not only did they finally identify Stacy, but they also used the same advanced DNA testing to catch her killer. According to a statement published by the FBI, this was the first case where both the victim and the perpetrator were identified by genetic genealogy, making it a historic case for law enforcement in private labs just like Othram. Without genetic genealogy, he may have gotten away with the perfect murder. Not only did forensics give us the killer, but the technology also gave us a more meaningful gift. The true identity of rising fawn Jane Doe, Stacy Lynn Chahorsky. If you're interested in helping to fund other cases just like Stacy's, please visit dnasolves.com. Your financial contributions help pay for lab supplies and research tools that directly help solve crimes and connect missing and unidentified people to their loved ones. You can donate monthly or simply make a one-time donation. Myself and the Rockefeller Audio Company are proud to be monthly financial donors to dnasolves.com. For more information on funding these types of cases, please visit dnasolves.com. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. 
Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., Paula G., Nicole G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Nancy H., Michael D., Nicola, Jerry M., Brian W., James C., Natasha K., and Julia S. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.